Wow, okay. Well, Keith, you think it's hard to come after Larry. How about coming after that song? <laughs> wow. Well, let's pray as we uh, go into God's Word together. <clears throat> Our gracious Father, would you be pleased this day to receive what we've just offered you in, in praise as a, an aroma that is pleasing in your sight, an offering of worship, because you are the great and awesome God who sits on the throne who rules and who reigns. Lord, we look around at the world in which we're living in. And we often focus on the chaos, the uncertainties, the tragedies, the difficulties, the, the things that we have no control over that seem to be spinning out of control, and we lose sight so often <clears throat> that you are on the throne, that nothing's out of your control, <clears throat> that you are orchestrating your plan and your purpose underneath the surface where we cannot see. You're even using the sinful decisions of mankind in your grand scheme. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves anew into your hands. We ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would encourage us, that you will help us as we walk this journey to keep our eyes on you, to believe with all of our heart that you are indeed that holy God we sang about, that God who is glorious, whose splendor outshines the sun. God, help us to live in light of that reality. Teach us now from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, William Borden's parents gave their 16-year-old son a trip around the world. As a young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, William Bill, as he was known, Borden, wrote home about his desire to become a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look just like one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him and it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead, spiritually, of any of us. He was already given, he had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and had really done it. We knew when his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock, just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry into his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. That entry said simply, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke in a convocation about the student's need 
of having a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. Surveying the year faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented what he saw as the end result of an empty humanistic philosophy, moral weakness, and sin ruined lives. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. Well, it was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of the year's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden made it his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to, to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, one person wrote, each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone thought to be a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down to me. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven to try to rehabilitate them. He founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of Bill Borden's friends wrote that he, he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kensu people in China. Fixing his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider foreign missionary service. One of them said of him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt it was of the stuff martyrs were made of, and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. And although Gordon refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. It's been reported that in his Bible, Bill Borden wrote two more words, no retreats. William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and when he finished his studies in Princeton, he sailed to China because he was hoping to work with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis within a month. 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Taylor in her introduction to his biography. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he, report, he was reported to have written, no regrets. Here's a young man who has the world at his fingertips. Anything he wants in life, he can have. 
he turned it all down. Because he had his eyes fixed on the prize of eternity. Of living his life, expending his energy in the service of Christ. He lived with an eternal perspective. This morning, we want to begin a series through the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church of Philippi while he was in prison. Many believe he was in prison in Rome. Some believe he was in prison in Caesarea. Others believe he was, might have even been in Ephesus in prison. Nonetheless, he was writing from prison. He wrote to a church made up mostly of Romans and Greeks with some Jews sprinkled in as well. We learn from Luke in the book of Acts chapter 16 that Paul founded this church. His close personal relationships with the people in the church lead to a very personal letter. Probably one of the most, if not the most personal of Paul's letters recorded in the Bible. He wrote to encourage them to remain faithful because God had begun this good work in them and he was confident that God would fulfill that good work and could bring it to completion. Apparently there was some some disagreements within the church, and Paul addresses them throughout a couple passages. We'll, when we work through that, we'll see that. The major theme of the book of Philippians is the idea of joy. In fact, the word rejoice or joy is found 16 different times in these four chapters. The joy that Paul is talking about is a deep, settled state of mind and soul that views life from an eternal perspective, regardless of the circumstances. A deep, settled joy that is able to view all of life from an eternal perspective, no matter what is going on. Dr. Tom Constable, in his Introduction to the book of Philippians says the Philippian Christians were special favorites of the Apostle Paul. Their response to the gospel and their subsequent progress in the faith were exemplary. However, the connections between Paul and Philippi that the New Testament records, both in Acts and in this letter, reveal an interesting paradox. In both books, there is a lot about prison and a lot about rejoicing. Paul ended up in prison when he first evangelized Philippi. Yet in prison, Paul and Silas sang praises to God. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was again in prison. However, the dominant emotion that it projects in this book is that of rejoicing. The paradox of a man in prison rejoicing lies at the root of what this book is all about. Such an attitude demonstrates an unusual view of life. It is a uniquely Christian view. It is the view from eternity. It is seeing life as it happens while we're living here on earth from an eternal perspective. It's being able to rise above our circumstances, rise above the uncertainties, rise above the difficulties, rise above the chaos, and live in light of an eternal perspective. So as we work through the book of Philippians, we're going to see the Apostle Paul continuing to call them back to this perspective, to refer to this reality as we work through and see him continuing to call them to rejoice. He rejoiced regardless of the situation. Would you open your Bibles with me please to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. When we see the introduction, a common introduction of that day where you see the author stating who he is and something about himself. You see him referring to those he's writing to, the recipients of the letter, and then a, a, a greeting. And then he moves in to, to teach us as he reveals his heart for the people there, we learn in verses 3 through 11 how we can pray like the Apostle Paul. 
We see into the heart of this man. We see how his heart is toward these people. We see how he prays for them. And we can learn how to pray like him. Have you ever, have you ever felt like your prayers aren't getting anywhere? They don't get very far, maybe to the ceiling, if even that. You feel like you're maybe repeating the same words every day. It becomes right. Uh, you you kind of get discouraged in your prayers. Wouldn't it be nice if we could pray like a, like a, like a, a man like the Apostle Paul? Well, we see some insight into the kinds of things he prays about. And we can learn from him how to pray. Follow along with me as I read Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because you, you are in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the, and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless unto the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, that couple, first couple of verses, Paul is the author, and he includes Timothy. Timothy's with him. Timothy probably is not a primary author, though he may have been the amanuensis, that is, the one who wrote down the words that Paul dictated to him. Or it could be that Paul was simply with him as he wrote, and so he includes him. But it's interesting that he refers to himself and Timothy as bondservants of Christ. In most of his letters, he refers to himself as an apostle. Because he has, to, he has to emphasize, in a sense, his authority in writing this letter to them because there's something he has to tell them, something they need to hear from an authority about how to live out their faith. In this case, Paul says, ah, we're, just, we're just servants of Jesus, willing servants of Jesus. He's writing to people he knows very well, and he's writing, and some, some believe this is simply a thank you letter from the Apostle Paul to the people of Philippi for their continuous financial support. And he's writing, revealing his heart for them. And he, he writes to the saints who are in Christ in, in Philippi, <clears throat> including the overseers and deacons. Some, some believe this is a reference to the two offices in the church that might have even been in place by that early time. Others believe that the overseers or elders, the same, same word. Um, but these were the, the servants in the church. They were the leaders and they were servants. And that word deacons means servants. So it, it, it's, either way, he's, he wants them to know that everybody in the church, including even the leaders, are included in this, is greeting this letter that thanks to them. And then the common greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to spend our time looking at this prayer, looking particularly from verses 3 through 11. And as we again, we see the heart of Paul, we learn how to pray. First of all, we can develop a thankful heart in prayer. <clears throat> Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer. Every time Paul prayed, and every time he remembered them, he gave thanks to God for all of them. He had a thankful heart. 
This thanksgiving was for the people. So we're going to learn to pray, develop a prayer, a thankful heart in prayer. We need to thank God for the people in your life. Every time he remembered them, he prayed. And in that prayer, he gave thanks with joy. Many times when we give thanks to God, it's, it's because of a circumstance. Or it's for, it's for something other than a person, right? Uh, stuff. Some, some situation worked out to our advantage. Maybe something was uncertain and then it, it, it happened and then it worked out well. And so now we're thankful for that, that, that happened. Just this past week I found myself challenged by this as we were on vacation and uh, went out on Thursday morning to start the car to go do what we were going to do that day and the car didn't start. And we're a couple hours away and we don't know anybody there. And how are we going to find a good mechanic that's not going to take us take advantage of us? So I remember that Gary Rose used to live down there. So I called them up and I said, Gary, do you know any good mechanics in the area? And, and uh, he got on the phone and started calling people he knew. And I got a call from the, the former pastor. And we, we, we go to this mechanic. And, and then his son goes down there. And he said, I think this mechanic might be good. It's only a couple miles away. And so we ended up calling for a tow truck and get, getting it there. And, uh, and the car got fixed. And I found myself immediately thanking God for taking care of that situation. And then I started thinking about this sermon I'm going to preach on Sunday. And the Lord said, well, what about thanking God for, for Gary and his willingness to help you? What about thanking God for the mechanic who didn't take advantage of you? What about thanking God for the, the pastor down there who didn't need to call me and say, hey, we use this mechanic. So I found myself, my heart beginning to say, okay, Lord, it's not just the circumstance, it's the people that you've put in my life, surrounded me with. Thank you, Lord, for these people. You know, as you look back over your life, you can probably identify certain times, significant moments in your life where something happened, something significant, maybe in your walk with the Lord or in your life, and you can probably identify an individual, somebody that God used in that moment to speak a word, to, to be there for you, to help out, to do something. We've got to give thanks for the people who are gifts in our life. Paul does. But he takes it a step further and he thanks God for these particular people who participated in the ministry of sharing the gospel. We thank God for those who partner with us in serving Christ. The Philippians participate, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel. From the first day until now, it's continuing. Their participation wasn't just once, it was continuing, ongoing. And it was primarily through financial help. If you go to the to chapter 4 of Philippians. You see the apostle referencing this. Verse 15. You yourselves also know, he says, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, which was the larger region where Philippi was located, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, <clears throat> as Paul is talking about to the Corinthians, he's getting ready to, to talk to them about this gift, financial gift that he's 
collecting, as he's going around to these different churches, he's collecting a, a financial collection to take back to Jerusalem to help the Jewish Christians who are in great poverty. And he's speaking about this issue of giving, and he starts out in chapter 8 by saying, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi in Macedonia. That a great, a great ordeal of affliction, an abundance of joy, and a deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, listen to this, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. When's the last time you begged God for an opportunity to give financially? Right? You, just, you just couldn't wait to give. That's the Philippians. That's how they participate in the gospel with Paul. Not only that, but I'm sure that also through their sharing personally with one another and with others around them of the gospel. They were partners when we give to the Lord's work, we partner with everyone who benefits from that and the ministry that they do for Christ. We're partners with them. We partner with every one of our missionaries that we support financially. And they are partners with us in the gospel that is going out throughout the world. And so I would, I would challenge you to make it a habit to begin praying for our missionaries with thanksgiving, going to God and thanking God that we get the chance and the opportunity to partner with these missionaries as a church. And many of you support missionaries privately, personally, um, on your own. Spend time in prayer, giving thanks with joy for the the opportunity to participate in the gospel with them. And others who participate with you in your ministry and service for the Lord to give thanks, to cultivate a thankful heart for the people that God has brought into your life. Another way, generally speaking, to cultivate a thankful heart is to write thank you notes. That's a lost art in our world. We tend to just kind of shoot off a text or a, a, an email or something. Uh, but a, a handwritten note takes more time and energy, and it oftentimes means more to somebody to get a note in the mail. So one of the things we, we tried to emphasize with our kids as they were growing up is the importance of that. And, you know, it, it is. It takes a lot longer. But what it does is, not only does it communicate to that person that you are thankful for them and, and what they did or who they are, but also causes your heart to be thankful. And one of the things I try to remember to do every time I write, write another birthday card or a, a thank you note is to pray for the person I'm writing it to, to thank God for them, to pray that God will be at work in their life. It helps me. Develop a thankful heart. And so I encourage you to think about that. Secondly, develop a confident perspective in prayer. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about a confidence in God, in Christ. Paul had that confidence. He said in verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This one who is at work, I am confident in him. And so first of all, confidence is in the Lord himself. The one who began this good work, he's the one who will perfect it. We can trust the Lord that he is working a good plan. No matter what hardships we're facing at the moment, no matter what uncertainties there may be, we can have a level of confidence 
in the Lord because of who he is. It's important to remind ourselves of this because we easily forget. We tend to focus on our circumstances, on whatever's happening in the moment and our ability or inability to do anything about it. And then we begin to fret and worry when there is a God who sits on the throne who is capable of taking care of this. The two qualities of God that we must always keep in mind are the the greatness of God and the goodness of God. His greatness means that he is capable of doing anything. Almighty God. And his goodness means that he is faithful and loving and desires to do what is in you and my best interest. The enemy will try to get you to doubt one or the other. You might say, well, yeah, God is good. God cares about you, but he really can't do anything about it because obviously he's not. Look at your circumstance. Look at what's going on. God can't do anything about it. Or God can do something about it, but he really doesn't care because he's not doing anything. If we can reject that doubt and hold on to the fact that God is great and God is good and keep focused on that reality, we can have confidence and move through whatever it is we're going through, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is working a plan. Our confidence is in the Lord himself. And secondly, our confidence is in the Lord's work. He is indeed at work. Paul says, I'm confident of this work that he began, he's going to bring it to completion. And that, when he talks about that, until the day of Christ, that is, when it's all said and done, he's going to bring it to completion at that point. All the way to there. <clears throat> we tend to focus on the here and now. What's not happening right now? Well, God, God is working in time and space. And what is time to God? We can trust his work. The thing that he is referring to here is their participation in the gospel. And what that gospel is doing in people's lives. You ever get discouraged when you, you're trying to either witness to, to a coworker or a friend or you're praying for somebody to get saved and there doesn't seem to be any movement in that direction from anything you can see. And you get discouraged. You think, man, I might as well just put my energy somewhere else. <clears throat> God may be working underneath the surface in ways you and I cannot see. And so we have confidence in the Lord and the work that God does. Salvation is a process. A process where the Holy Spirit is is bringing conviction into the heart of of an unbeliever. Helping them to see their need for Christ, that they are a sinner and that sinner separated them from God and judgment will be coming if they stay in that condition. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in that to bring conviction and to, to help them see that. And then when they hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ took the punishment for sin that they deserve and he paid it on their behalf and experienced the wrath of the Holy God for them. <clears throat> He rose the third day to prove that God the Father accepted his sacrifice because he was pleased to raise him from the dead. When they begin to understand that in light of the fact that they know that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit helps them understand that and then they put their faith in Christ they enter into a relationship with God but it's not over there. That's the beginning of this process. That's where justification happens. Right, the moment that we are saved in, in time and space. But then we move, enter into a process of what's called sanctification, this, this process of growing up in the Lord. That's part of the process of salvation. We are growing in Christ's likeness. We are, we are learning to surrender our lives more fully every day and let Christ's life live out in us through His Spirit. And the, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our life more and more as we're yielding ourselves, as he's forming Christ's likeness in us, until the day we reach glory at glorification where we will be finally and fully 
saved. An easy way to understand this is justification is that we are delivered from the, the penalty of sin. No longer do we, do we worry about ever having experienced the penalty of sin because Jesus Christ took that for us. At the moment we came to know Christ, justified, the penalty of sin is removed. Sanctification is the process whereby we are being delivered from the power of sin. And it, it, the hold that sin has on us begins to lessen and lessen as we're growing up in the Lord. The things we struggled with don't have such the hold it does on us now. And the things we're struggling with now, we're going to grow and, and that's going to have less hold. We're growing up. And then glorification is we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. That sin will no longer be, it will be eradicated completely when we are with the Lord. That's the process of sanctification. And God is at work in that. And so we can trust him. And we can have confidence that God is working in people's lives. No matter where they are in the spectrum, whether they're unbelievers in need of His Spirit to work, whether they're new believers, whether they're, they're stuck in a certain place in their walk, or God wants to grow and God can work in their lives, and we can pray for them until the day He calls them home. And we can be confident that the Lord who began a good work will continue working it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, man, I, it's so good that I feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. You are, you are so special to me because of their participation in his imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then we come to verse 9, the prayer itself. He says, and this is why I'm praying for you. And this third area is to develop a growth mentality in prayer, to, to think more than just, again, seeing, excuse me, seeing a person get saved. We want to see them become all that God wants them to be. We want to see more, more William Bordens, people who give their life to Christ and, and let Christ work in their life. And so he says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. We should pray for growth in love. Love is the distinguishing mark of a believer. Jesus said, by this they will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not the emotion, not the, not the sentimentality, but a love that says, I will put others ahead of myself. I will serve people. I will surrender my life to, to serve other people. That's the kind of love. And Paul says, I want your love to continue to abound, to grow. That word abound means to superabound, to go above and beyond. In real knowledge, real knowledge, <clears throat> Alec Motyer in his commentary says, we grow in proportion as we know. To grow as a Christian is to grow in one's grasp of the truth. In breadth and depth, ignorance is a root cause of stunted growth. We need to know the truth if we're going to grow. But then Kent Lee says a Christian can have an understanding knowledge of the word that is to be able to explain its meaning to others without having any experiential knowledge of the same. But when that Christian has put the word of God into practice in his life, then he has what Paul's talking about here. A real knowledge, an experiential knowledge. This is love that is rooted in truth, but acts out of that truth and cares for people, puts others' needs ahead of ourselves. Often, particularly in, in a church tradition that, that many of us are, are from, there's a, a high emphasis in Bible knowledge, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a, a, a mentality that says biblical knowledge equals spiritual maturity. Theological understanding of, of concepts uh, equals maturity. And the problem is that if we stay there and we fill our heads with knowledge, maybe we memorize all kinds of verses and we think that that means spiritual maturity, but there's no 
activity, there's no service, there's no loving other people. We can treat people ignorantly. It doesn't matter because I know this or that. I can, I can tell you what this theological word means. I can quote these scriptures, but I treat people like crap. That's not spiritual maturity. Yes, biblical knowledge aids in that spiritual maturity. We've got to know what the Bible says so that we're not a little bit. If we're not acting on it, if we're not loving people, then what does Paul say? It's a clanging symbol, 1 Corinthians 13. It's of no value if, if we have not love. And so Paul says, I want your love, which they've already demonstrated. And he said, I want that love you have to continue to grow more and more in real knowledge, and in all discernment. Which brings us to the second way we can pray growth, pray for growth and discernment. A word approve, so that you may approve means to try something, to distinguish the worth and value of something. It says we want to approve of things that are excellent, that are moral or ethically right. We want to be able to grow in that, to discern these things. As parents, some of the most frustrating times are when your children become teenagers and you expect them to have discernment. And oftentimes their brain hasn't developed enough to get there yet. But we as parents, man, we, we expect them to have the discernment to know the difference between right and wrong in every situation. And when they make poor choices, it's very hard for us. And what we long for is that they would have the ability to be able to make choices because there's coming a day real soon when they're going to have to be out there out un from under our uh, protective care and our knowledge of what's going on. By the time they turn 16 and get their driver's license, man, they're on their own in some ways. And they're out there making decisions and if they don't have discernment, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. We want them to grow up. God wants us to grow up too. Right? And this is an area where we want to grow in discernment. And so when we pray for one another, let's pray that we'll grow in discernment. The ability to approve the things that are excellent. In order, there's a purpose here, in order to be sincere and blameless. The word sincere means, as a compound word, means the shining or splendor of the sun. And the second word means judgment. The idea here is that we would be able to judge or we would be sincere in that when the, the sun, the brightness of the sun shines on something, it reveals all the, all the character flaws, right? All the, the idiosyncrasies that are you know, not seen in the dark. Well, when you put it to the sun, you can see whether it has any flaws. And he says, I'm praying that your love will abound so much and your discernment will be such that you'll be able to prove things, that you will be sincere. You'll be able to stand in the light of the, the sun and be judged. And that you would be blameless. doesn't mean perfection. It means that you wouldn't be a stumbling block. That your life would be lived in such a way that when other people look at your life, they don't stumble and fall because they see all these inconsistencies. There's, a, there's, there's characteristics that are a representative of God in our life. That's the purpose of growth and discernment, that we would live this out. We would know what's right and wrong, and then we would live out what is right so our lives would reflect that until the day of Christ. See, this eternal perspective. We're not focused upon right now. We're focused on the long term. And then lastly, pray for growth in fruitfulness. Having been filled, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Do you realize we have everything we need as a believer? Those who have put our faith in Christ, we have everything we need to be fruitful for God. Everything. 
The moment we came to Christ, the Holy Spirit was implanted in us. A seed of all the fruit was there. This is what this means, having been filled. It's a, it's a perfect uh, a participle, which means something happened in the past that has continual ongoing ramifications into the future. The, the, this thing that happened when we came to know Christ is that we've been filled. Now we want to display that fruit. It's like a seed that's been playing on the ground. But here's the thing about a seed. Here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 12, 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. <laughs> In order for us to bear the fruit of righteousness, we already have the Holy Spirit in us. We need to die to ourselves and let his life live on in us. When we do that, our lives will bear fruit. Fruit that will bring glory to the Lord. Evidence of a life, of, of a life of Christ lived out in our life. Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He doesn't say, do good works in your own strength so that everybody thinks you're a wonderful person or you're a good Christian. No, he says, let your good works be on display. That is the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And when they see that, they'll give glory to God, not you and me. So we pray, like Paul, cultivating, developing a thankful heart for the people he has brought around us. The people he has allowed to participate with us and we with them in the work of the gospel. Secondly, we develop a confident perspective in the Lord and in what God is doing, regardless of the circumstances. Again, we know that there's a bigger thing going on here than just what I see and know. The experience. God is at work. And we pray for growth. Growth in love. Growth in discernment and growth in fruitfulness. That the person that we are praying for, whether it's our own children or, or one another in the body or, or someone uh, that we know, a coworker, friend, whatever, whoever it is, we're praying that God would do a work in them and would continue that work until the day He calls them home. So our prayers are for these things. You know, one of the things I, when I pray for my kids, and I pray for them every day, um, you know, certainly I want my kids to succeed in this world. I want them to, to be able to, I don't want them to struggle. I don't want them to have financial problems. I don't want any of that. As a parent, I don't want any of that for my kids. But I tell you what I pray for. I don't pray for that stuff. I pray that God would get a hold of their heart. I pray that God would continue to mold them and shape them in the image of Jesus. And he would grow them up. That they would know how to love. And those who are married would love their spouse. Uh, those who aren't married, that they would learn to love others around them. And, and, and they would have discernment to choose the right mate. Um, these are the things that, that matter for eternity. And uh, this is how we ought to be praying for each other and for, for, uh, for our loved ones. And Paul gives us a perfect example of this. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord Father, thank you. Thank you for the example set before us in a text. Thank you for reminding us of what kinds of things to pray for when we pray. God, may you challenge us as we go into our, our prayer closets this week to begin to pray like the Apostle Paul. Lord, transform our prayers. 
Help us to grow as we're praying for others' growth. Lord, I thank you for, for these people that I get to stand before week after week and preach your word. I'm thankful for the participation in the gospel that we all are in this together. Encouraging each other, supporting one another, praying for one another, joining forces, sharing with each other, whether it's in life group or in ABF times or in times outside of church organized events where people get together and fellowship, build relationships, and our prayers for one another in all these ways. And we're thankful to you. God, would you ask that you would continue working in us? Keep working. The process of sanctification. For those who may be in the hearing of my voice, whether online or here, that have never come to a place where they understand their sin has separated them from God and they need a Savior. God, I pray that in these moments, they might, your Holy Spirit might help them see, convince them, not because I'm saying anything, but because this is the truth. And they need you. Bring them to yourself. And Lord, I pray for each of us that we would continue to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've done, and, and we would continue to surrender our lives into your hands. That you would work in us cultivating that sincere blamelessness until the very day you call us home. And God, would you produce fruit? Fruit that's in keeping with who you are. Fruit that is evident to everyone and that as a result of that, you would get the glory and the honor and we'll give you thanks for all that you are doing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.